This is Bart Peterson, and you are listening to the FCPA Compliance Report on the Compliance Podcast Network. This is Greg Gilchrist, and you are listening to the FCPA Compliance Report on the Compliance Podcast Network. This is Dan DeMarco, and you are listening to the FCPA Compliance Report on the Compliance Podcast Network. In this podcast, I begin a multi-part exploration of the Wirecard accounting scandal with Kyle Reader Gordon, Managing Director of Affiliated Monitors. We introduce the topic. Kyle goes through some of the many scandals the company has been involved with over the years. We highlight the failure of the regulators in Germany in this case and foreshadow some of the upcoming topics we'll explore on future podcasts. Gordon, you have a pretty uh, interesting professional background, but before you get to that, could you tell us a little bit about your uh, educational background and then move into your professional background? Sure. Yeah, I'm happy to. It's a little bit of an unusual path for a, a lawyer in some ways. Uh, I started uh, college at uh, Dartmouth College in uh, New Hampshire and uh, majored in uh, Russian and government there. And was thinking for a while that I was maybe interested in the academic route. And so then got a master's in uh, Russian politics and uh, government at uh, London School of Economics. We got a master's. That was a year-long program. And at that point, I also started in working what would be uh, the first in a series of uh, uh, journalistic posts. Uh, I started working for ABC News in London. And then after that year, I came back to the States and started uh, my degree program at uh, Harvard Law School, where I focused on freedom of the press issues, uh, international law, uh, took a couple classes in Islamic law. So I uh, was really interested in, in different uh, legal backgrounds, so to speak. So could you tell us now a little bit about your uh, professional uh, career? Uh, you started, uh, I think you said, with uh, doing some work with ABC News in London. But after you came back to the States and pursued your law degree, how did you move into journalism from there? Well, uh, during law school, I did some stints at uh, in journalism while I was there. I worked, uh, did some freelance work for ABC News when they were, in the old days, when they were covering the summits between uh, Reagan and Gorbachev. Uh, I worked on a, a few of those. And then during one of the summers of law school, I was, uh, I was backing up Tom Brokaw doing research on the uh, Iran-Contra hearings, if anybody remembers those way back when. And those experiences really sparked my interest in investigative reporting especially the uh, Iran-Contra hearing. So uh, after law school, I decided that I would really be, if there was a time to try something different, uh, that would be it. I, I figured I could uh, go back to law at some point if I wanted to. But so I, in preparation for that, I, I did take the bar exams in uh, New York and Massachusetts, but uh, decided to go take the journalistic route. And um, worked for a while at NBC and then got... Uh, Hired uh, again at ABC, where I worked in the documentaries unit and uh, did some investigative uh, work there and then got hired at uh, Nightline at ABC News and uh, worked there for seven or eight years, did all sorts of investigative stuff, had a lot of fun, uh, did some traveling along the way and then decided to start my own production company, which was great. And that uh, 
production company eventually morphed into a PR and marketing company that I had for a number of years, just until last year. I actually did a lot of uh, events, including events in the compliance and anti-money laundering space, and then realized after a while that I wasn't really doing what I wanted to do. I was doing a lot of marketing for companies, uh, which is fine, which is great, which is interesting. But I really decided that I wanted to get back into some of the work that I've been doing in the compliance area and investigations. Uh, but instead of being a journalist doing it, I decided I wanted to combine my experiences in journalism and law and really pursue it from that, that new angle for me. So, Gordon, I've had the opportunity to uh, interview authors. I've had the uh, opportunity to interview print reporters, but I've never had the opportunity to interview someone who'd been in uh, television journalism or uh, had his his own production company. Uh, Is the work that you would do to prepare a story similar to other types of journalism, or is it different or was it different because it was being presented visually? There's always an aspect of it. Well, I think the greatest difference actually is that you generally have a lot less time or space to put your story together. If you're doing a print story, you basically have, especially these days online, you have unlimited space to present your story. In uh, television, you have, you know, if you have five minutes, if you have half an hour, that's it. You know, you have to put it into that space. You have to make it comprehensible and understandable because people can't go back really and uh, reread something or go to the index. Uh, so it's got to be spelled out pretty, at a pretty basic level. Um, Ted Koppel, who I used to work for at Nightline said it's basically what he was presenting at as a level, uh, sort of a well-educated high school student. Uh, so that if you were at that level, you could understand it and get the idea of what was going on. But in order to get to that point, we had to do often a ton of work, uh, just the same amount of work and preparation that you do for any story. It's just a lot less of it made it to air than would make it to air in a magazine story. So we'd leave a lot out, in other words. Kind of moving forward now, Gordon, what was it that perhaps not so much intrigued you, but you thought you would enjoy working on the compliance, um, back in the compliance world directly, but from the legal perspective, what kind of drew you back to our world? Well, a couple of things. I think one was that while I enjoyed covering it as a, a journalist, I really wanted to be more involved, directly involved in helping people or working with people. As time went on, I found it somewhat outrageous that some uh, kleptocrats and other people, despots, basically could have unlimited access to the best uh, legal talent that money could buy. And I thought that was pretty, and I still do think that's pretty outrageous, that they can basically use the money that their ill-gotten gains uh, to hire the best legal talent that uh, that money could buy. And I, I wanted to really get involved in taking the other side of that and really getting to the bottom of things. Uh, and secondly, just the, the intellectual pursuit of it. I always enjoyed, have enjoyed diving into document searches, uh, paper trails. Might sound weird, but um, I loved putting the pieces together. So, you know, for example, when I was early on uh, doing the, uh, we were, uh, one of the early stories I was working on was the arming of Iraq, uh, 
part one, uh, when they were putting together their nuclear capabilities and their uh, chemical warfare capabilities. There were a lot of uh, paper trails, money laundering, uh, lots of tricks going on. And I just, including one that involved the U.S. Uh, agricultural subsidy program, believe it or not. And I just really enjoyed diving into those documents. It was like a, it was a combination of a uh, mystery novel in some ways and a uh, crossword puzzle and a jigsaw puzzle. And just so intellectually putting that together was always fascinating to me. And then seeing what happens, you know, at the, at the other end, what, what your, what the results are. So there were a couple of, uh, incidents that uh that that stood out uh particularly i was very early on uh doing a documentary on donald trump first first time around when he was putting his uh casino empire together ill-fated casino empire together in uh new jersey and this was i think my first or second week at abc and i was doing some work pursuing some leads that we generated about uh, the drug trade in the casino industry it's uh especially in the 90s, was difficult to separate the two. Whenever high rollers would come to casinos, they would be comped, all sorts of things, basically, whatever they wanted. And at all casinos, by and large, drug availability was, especially cocaine, was part of it. We were pursuing some leads that we had. He got wind of it. He apparently called Barbara Walters, who called my boss, and uh, said that they should get rid of me, basically, because I was poking my nose into things that where I didn't belong and that were untrue and, you know, et cetera. And so my boss called me to her office, uh, told me to, you know, what, what, what the hell are they doing? I laid it out, had all my notes. And she said, well, yeah, it seems like you've, you know, keep, keep going. It's, uh, as long as you have the notes and uh, you're, you know, getting all sides of the story, that's fine. But uh, unfortunately, we never aired the story because the uh, Gulf, first Gulf War happened at that time and it was put on hold. But we uncovered a lot of the things that have come to light over the last four or five years at that time uh, in the Trump uh, organization. So that was an interesting story to uh, to work on for for a few months. Gordon, you said something there uh, in that in, in your remarks that intrigued me, and it was about the documentation. And in the, many of these stories you worked on, were you able to get documentation that was uh, in the public record that people just hadn't looked for or no one had asked for? Yeah, I, you know, we were able to get things, uh, well, several ways. One was I would just ask for things, basically. Sometimes we did a story for we were one of the first broadcasts, for example, to uh, when we were cutting uh, covering the uh, Oklahoma City bombing, for example. Uh, we wanted to get the 911 recordings, what happened uh, at the time. And that's pretty common now, but no one had ever asked uh, for the 911 recordings. So we just put in a request. And it wasn't even a FOIA request. We just asked the uh, emergency services if we could have the 911 tapes. And they said, sure. So we included that in our broadcast. So one is just never heard to ask, you know, the worst someone's going to say is no. <laughs> uh, we, uh, on occasion, I would file uh, FOIA requests, uh, Freedom of Information Act requests. Often those were not particularly useful because we'd get whole pages and documents redacted so you know it would be one of these things you see in the movies sometimes uh, that you get uh, entire documents back with uh, the heading 
and then a full page of uh, black ink covering the stuff that you wanted to see. Um, other times we would get leaks from people who wanted to ex- expose their side of the story. Uh, lawyers actually were a big source of information from us, giving uh, us access to information that they had um, uncovered in um, discovery or some other other way that they wanted to to get things out there. Uh, so, uh, and then also, of course, uh, what I loved doing, especially at that time, where they weren't nothing was available online really. At that, we're talking the early mid nineties, late nineties. Um, SEC documents are a great source, and they still are. They're easier, fortunately, a lot easier to get these days. But they tell amazing stories in it. Uh, you know, if you know where to look and you know what some of the uh, read between the lines of some of the things they're talking about uh, or what people are being paid or consultants who are being hired, especially sections where they're talking about where they're legally obligated to talk about potential risks that their companies are facing. Uh, They often try to put the best spin on it, but if you really look, you can tell what trouble might be down the road for certain companies or industries. And and certainly we're seeing that now with the uh, coronavirus Gordon, if we could pivot now to the pivot you've made and going back into the private practice of law, uh, really desiring to work with companies uh, and their compliance programs and and bring the investigative skills that you developed over the years to companies for internal investigations, due diligence, and that type of work, it really strikes me that... Um, particularly now uh, in the age of the coronavirus health crisis and the economic dislocation where many people are either working from home or they're banned from traveling, those skills you have in putting the puzzle together with the documents could be an extraordinarily useful skill for companies to have and just to kind of to hear your doggedness and following a story, that's exactly what's needed now in internal investigations. Uh, do you see sort of the, the same thing in the corporate world? Uh, yes. Yeah, absolutely. So the, so first, I would love to, the opportunity to work with companies where I actually have access to their documents um, instead of trying to dig them out. If they're actually giving them to me, I think we can pretty quickly move into what they're seeking to uncover or pursue, uh, you know, granted it's not going to be for public, uh, access most of the time, but if they want, if someone is, uh, embezzling something within a company or doing something that they're not supposed to be doing, it will be terrific and a great help to have access in the company's, uh, uh, willingness to, uh, give me access to what they'd like to uncover. That's a great head start. And I think uh, what we're going to be seeing is uh, certain things happen in desperate times, I think. And unfortunately, we're in, for, for many industries, some desperate times where uh, vendors or uh, people they're dealing with or partners might be feel the pressure to do things that they wouldn't normally do that are uh, unethical or illegal. And I think over the and, – and things – recently are coming out that there has been fraud already in the uh, uh, stimulus program and companies trying to pull fast ones and even companies applying for loans and packages and grants that they're not uh, able to uh, 
or shouldn't have access to. We're seeing a lot of things come up, and I think it's going to be the case, and particularly uh, companies pursuing government contracts. Um, I think there's going to be, unfortunately, a lot of lot of work out there and a, a lot of risk to companies that want to do things the right way. Gordon, I had originally intended to focus on sort of anti-corruption, AML risks, but you bring up a great point, which is with the stimulus package and the injection of literally trillions of dollars into the economy, I think the, the fraud risk is going to probably be greater for the short term, and that short term may last several years. Um, and uh, to the Department of Justice's credit, it has already formed a task force to investigate fraud in that program. And I think companies are going to want to get ahead of that, uh, number one. And two, uh, there's going to be uh, a large amount of secondary and and tertiary, not tertiary, but um, a spinoff litigation, civil litigation around insurance fraud or other types of fraud uh, because of the health crisis. So uh, I think you may have hit actually a great time to to take those uh, skills that you have and putting the puzzle together from the documents and to help a wide variety of clients right now. An issue is that this happened so quickly and uh, suddenly with the stimulus program that have been initiated, that it's basically opened a fire hose of money. Uh, which was needed, you know, for companies to stay afloat and for the economy to keep functioning at, at some level. Uh, and there was no uh, other, you know, it had to be done, basically. The money had to be out there and it had to be made available very quickly. But as a result, the safeguards that might usually be put in place, uh, there wasn't time to put them in place. There wasn't time necessarily to think uh, through how the requests our applications would be vetted. Uh, so it was, it was much more the mindset was let's get the money out there so we can help most of the people. And there's going to be some problems along the way, but we'll deal, we'll have to deal with those later at, uh, at, at some point. So I, I think it's a you, it, different uh, type of program and that programs are usually introduced more slowly and there are safeguards embedded in them. And they're more, the legislation is more carefully Drafted. I think even we saw very, very early on a problem with the uh, uh, small business loans that were made available, that they were taken by large public companies. And part of that was that the, the language of the legislation was uh, it didn't allow uh, it, it allowed that. Basically, it uh, larger companies that it wasn't intended to serve them, but they could apply for it. And then once that started happening, uh, legislation had to be enacted and, and regulations had to be redrawn. So as, as a result, the Small Business Administration was continually making changes in their regulations as to who could access these uh, sources of money, uh, which is something you don't normally see in legislation that has time to go through the normal, slow but normal process. Uh, here it just happened overnight, basically. Gordon, unfortunately, we are near the end of our time, but I was wondering if any of our listeners wanted to follow up with you directly or find out more information about your now burgeoning law practice. Uh, where would they go and how would they do it? Sure. I'm happy to hear from anybody out there, whether it's uh, direct referrals or just information or my thoughts on anything. Uh, happy to talk. Uh, they can reach me directly at my uh, uh, email, 
which is uh, G Platt, and that's uh, G as in Gordon, Platt, P-L-A-T-T, at gordonplattlaw.com. Uh, so that's G Platt at gordonplattlaw.com. Um, or they can uh, check out my uh, newly launched uh, website, gordonplattlaw.com. So those are probably the, and email is probably the best way to, uh, to reach me. Uh, I'm online most of, as you are, most of the day. Gordon, uh, this has been a fascinating uh, exploration of, of your career, where you were, but more importantly, where you're going. I hope uh, we can consider uh, you coming back in a, several months and telling us how it's been going. So I hope we can continue the conversation. Tom, I would uh, love to do that. And thank you for this opportunity. And thanks, your audience, for, for listening. And I uh, hope to speak with you soon. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. I hope you'll join me again next week where I take a look at an issue related to the FCPA Compliance and Ethics. We have two great new podcast series on the Compliance Podcast Network that I hope you're aware of. The first one is Compliance and Coronavirus, where I try to bring sanity and clarity to the compliance practitioner and the business executive around coronavirus. Also, the Compliance Life features one CCO a month talking about their journey to the CCO chair and beyond in four parts. Uh, this month, it's Ryan Robillet and has who has a fascinating journey. Also, if you're a fan of Teddy Roosevelt, I have a series on 12 O'Clock High, a podcast on business leadership hosted by Richard Lummis, where we're looking at Teddy Roosevelt, his life, his presidency and beyond, and what its messages are for the leaders of today. It's a fascinating series. I know you will enjoy it, and it's particularly important for compliance practitioners to uh, take a look at leadership skills. I hope you'll join me again next week for our next episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. The FCPA Compliance Report is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of C-Suite Radio. Thanks again for listening. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.